Every now and then, I find a book concept that just demands my attention. Consider this one. Gender swapped Alexander the Great in space. Now just how do you say no to that? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with science fiction and fantasy author Kate Elliott. Her latest book, Unconquerable Sun, is the first in the Sun Chronicles series and was released yesterday. Kate and I discussed the Hawaiian Islands method of writing, how to approach the world building of new cultures, and the history of Alexander the Great. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the interview and see what Kate had to say. Kate Elliott, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. Thank you. Before I jump into the interview proper, I, I hear you've been world building spaceships since you were a teenager. How, how did you hear that? <laughs> I, I've done a little bit of homework listening to uh, other podcasts and interviews you've given. You, you clearly have. Yeah, when I was in what was then called junior high and I believe is now called middle school, my brother and I drew a, a spaceship and then we signed up all the kids in our classes to be different things. I was not the captain, by the way. I wanted to be the astrogator. <laughs> so the person, the navigator. And then later when I got into high school, I realized I didn't, I could do math, but I didn't enjoy doing the math as it got harder and harder. So I kind of gave up that as a goal in life. Yeah, that, that seems like that would kind of be a necessary skill if you were going to be helping navigate a spaceship. I, I Unfortunately, yes. Well, then the first question I typically like to ask everyone is, how did you first fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? And when did you decide to become a writer? You know, I don't know really why or when I first fell in love with science fiction and fantasy. I just know that from early on, probably eight, nine, ten, I wanted to read books that were, now that I look at them, that were science fiction and fantasy. So I we had Scholastic Book Fair, like kids do today. And those are the books I would go in and look for, the ones that had some supernatural elephant uh, element, not an elephant or a supernatural elephant too, for that matter. I don't know. Um, or a <laughs> science fiction element. And those were the books I bought. And some of those books are still on the shelf of the home I grew up in where my mom still lives. And it's so funny to me to look at them because there is not a single one of those ancient old scholastic paperbacks that are just like what I would call regular mainstream fiction. They're all science fiction and fantasy. So that is just what I gravitated toward. And then I liked to, I started writing, I mean, I liked to write and I started writing probably at about 10 or 11. And I started writing, I'm going to say seriously as a teenager, what I mean by seriously as a teenager, as like 14, 15, when I really began to write stories that had beginnings and middles and ends. Again, I don't, know why I did it. I just wanted to write stories about a place that wasn't rural Oregon where I grew up. Maybe in part because I wanted to go to those places and I wished I could go to those places. So it might have just been wish fulfillment. I, I think that's one of the things that I love the most about science fiction fantasy is that anything at all is possible. So whether that's wish fulfillment or escapism or just tackling issues you see in your everyday life, but from a different perspective. I, I think it's just a beautiful genre. I, I agree completely. So moving on a little bit into 
actual writing craft. Back in 2011 on Tor.com, you said that you preferred Tad Williams' phrase Hawaiian Islands method over Panzer versus Plotter, or I guess these days, Gardner versus Architect, or Discovery Writer versus Outliner. Uh, so is that still how you describe your writing style? I do talk about it that way. The reason that the kind of that 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 stricter dichotomy between like pantser versus plotter doesn't work for me is because I don't totally write into the dark. I know some things that are happening, but I also don't plot out the whole book and write an extensive, you know, 80 page outline so that I can just then sit down and write it. And I need to add here that I don't write all my books exactly the same way. I've had books that I basically, the first draft was the all the scenes that I needed at that point. Um, this would be, for example, the Sword of Heaven, which is the second and third Geron books. That basically, when I finished that first draft and I went back to do revisions, I had to add two short scenes for clarity. And other than that, the book was structured exactly right because I had been thinking about it for 10 years. But in other cases, I know some things that have to happen. And how I get there, I don't always know. So I don't really feel like I fall into either spot. And the reason I like the Hawaiian Islands method as a way to describe it is exactly because those islands are like the tips of icebergs. They're, they're much larger below the ocean than they are above the ocean. But when I'm writing, I, there's places that I know I'm aiming for I, that I can see, like I can see those islands. But to get between islands, I have to go underwater where I don't know necessarily what I'm doing. And so I'll have things that I know I want, but also I'll discover things as I'm getting there that I couldn't have come up with beforehand, that actually the process of going undersea is part of the process of coming up with ideas that kind of amaze me or that startle me. So I like both parts of it. I couldn't go without having an end in mind, but I also cannot, some things just drop into my head while I'm working. So that's kind of, so that's why I like that description. And it's a little appropriate, I guess, for you as well, given that you actually live in the Hawaiian Islands. Right. Although I learned that phrase before I even knew or had any idea that I would ever live in the Hawaiian Islands. Oh, really? I, well, yeah. I like that phrase even more then. <laughs> so more recently, from a craft standpoint, you tweeted that the most frustrating part of writing novels is getting better at it actually makes it harder. So I guess, could you elaborate on what you mean by this? Unfortunately, I can. <laughs> um, you know, in, as you get better at something, and this could be true, say, as a musician or as a coder or as a writer or, you know, as a plumber, really anything, right? You can, you, you gain skill. And so to some extent, as a better writer, there's aspects of writing that I can do fairly easily now, but the problem is, is that the better I get at it, the reason I think it gets harder is that I have, partly it's because I have higher standards for myself, partly it's because as I write first draft, I can see what the problems are. And I'm not a person who writes a perfect first draft. Some people 
as I understand it. And I want to make a quick tangent to say to anybody listening that there isn't a way that you write. There isn't a way that you write a book. There isn't the right way. There's the way that works for you. So a lot of people use a lot of different processes to write with. And some people feel that a paragraph has to be right before they can go on to the next paragraph. So when they finish a first draft, they're basically done with the book. I'm not that writer. I write kind of sloppy first drafts, probably because I'm doing so much swimming underwater in the Hawaiian Islands method. And then when I get to the end, that's when I can finally begin to see the shape I need. And then I do a ton of revision. And when I was early in my writing career, when I was writing first draft, I didn't have strong expectations of how it needed to look. I mean, I couldn't see the problems as much partly. So I would just write a first draft and it was great. It was so much fun and I loved doing it. And I was like getting this story down on the page and how amazing is that? And then I would get to the end and someone would say, well, you need to fix X, Y, and Z. And I'd be like, how do I do that? I don't know how to do that. So revision was stressful. But as I wrote over decades and wrote, multi, you know, 27 novels or more now, um, I know better and better how to revise. So now when I write a first draft, I'm struggling against that need to revise, except I can't revise in first draft. I have to just write it down. So part of it is that struggle inside yourself against the thing in your head where you can envision what the book looks like. It gets sharper and more in focus the more experience you have. And for me, writing first draft, I'm always a long way away from that finished look that it's going to have. And so there's that, there's a struggle between those two places and that can make it hard. And then in addition to that, I think that a writer who challenges themselves with a more difficult project and trying different things, um, for example, and I think we're going to talk about this briefly later, I use not just multiple points of view in Unconquerable Sun, but multiple points of view with different, um, they're not all th like third person past. They're different points of view with different tenses in it, in them. Well, I didn't, I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to do that. But when I realized I had to do it, that added a level of complication or, or book two, which I'm working on now, there's a level of complication in it that sometimes I just want to beat my head against the wall and think part of me, you know, I'll say to myself, Oh my gosh, I can't do this. This is too much. It's too big. It's too complicated. And then I have to settle down and say two things to myself. One is that I can do it. I just need to be patient and go through the entire process, which I know how it goes. And I have to trust myself. Um, and, and then the other one, which is that it is harder because I'm trying something I couldn't have done 10 books ago. And that's kind of our goal is to get better. And you kind of can't get better unless you keep challenging yourself. Yeah. And I guess just the fact that you say it's harder now means that you are challenging yourself. So that seems like the best way uh, from a craft perspective to improve. And also, so you've now name dropped your latest book. So how about, do you have a pitch for us for Unconquerable Sun? Oh, I do have a pitch for Unconquerable Sun <laughs> and it's short and to the point. It is gender swapped Alexander the Great in space. 
and and that is exactly what it is. I don't even need to say anymore. I will say uh, that's what first brought the book on my radar. Uh, it's a very catchy pitch, and like you say, it is exactly what it is on the ten. It's my best pitch ever, but <laughs> only because it's totally truthful. <laughs> well, so I'm I'm most familiar with a lot of your fantasy novels, and I mean, as someone who's written over thirty books over multiple decades, uh, you have a lot out there in the world, but you don't have as many science fiction. So I'm curious, I guess. What are the biggest differences for you between writing fantasy and science fiction? I don't really see many differences for me. For me, speculative fiction is a big um, umbrella that I consider personally literature of the fantastic because the future stuff I write, and, and by the way, I should add that of my first eight novels, seven were science fiction. And then I switched to writing the Crown of Stars series, which became the series I was best known for. So after that, I continued to write fantasy. And those early science fiction novels, I mean, if you looked at the beginning of my career, I looked more like a science fiction writer, which is just interesting, but also a statement, a little bit of a statement about how science fiction maybe wasn't as popular and as fantasy was in the 90s. But I, in, in terms of differences between writing it, I, I kind of think in both cases, I'm writing what I would call epic stories of adventure with a lot of world building where I'm really interested in how the characters live in their worlds and how conflicts play out. That's always been what I wanted to write. So if there's a difference, it's just maybe in terms of science fiction, there's stuff I don't have to explain as much. So if somebody gets on a train or if I say they live in a republic, it's closer in many ways to the modern world. So it takes a little less explanation in fantasy. I sometimes get a little bogged down in explaining because I want people to understand that it isn't just an analog for our world, that it's its own place. I, I guess that would maybe be the biggest difference. Yeah, and I know even just like flavor and how books can feel sometimes. Like for me, reading Unconquerable Sun, it's like this epic space opera, but it's not that different for me as a reader than reading, say, an epic fantasy. It still has that sense of adventure. You've got those multiple point of view characters. You've got politics. You've kind of got this greater mystery out there and how the world works, and you're trying to figure it out as a reader. So yeah, I guess maybe there's not those hard lines between everything. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not that I could just flip it over and turn it into an epic fantasy. There would be a lot of changes you would have to do to make that work. But yes, that's that's what I'm going for, that sense of epic, that sense of movement, that sense of adventure, that sense of people interacting. Um, so yeah, I don't... I, I mean, this comes into play... With the idea, I don't. I don't write hard science fiction. I'm not here to describe or examine specific scientific concepts. the The space opera setting is like an epic fantasy setting. It needs to be internally consistent, but it is a setting. It is its own world for the story. I'm not trying to tell a scientific story or an engineering story. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And that actually is a perfect segue as well. Uh, the story you're trying to tell here parallels Alexander the Great, 
So my question is, why Alexander the Great? And then how much research into Alexander did you do? Well, why Alexander the Great? I, I don't know, but as I have said multiple times now, so I apologize if someone's listening to this who has heard me already say this, but I have three children, um, a daughter and then twin boys, and one of the boys is in fact named Alexander, after Alexander the Great. So <laughs> I've been interested in that story. It's such an interesting story about the person who does what seems to be impossible and this charismatic leader, and then they die, you know, so young, having done more than many others have done in much more time. But also it's a story that Western culture and, I mean, the Romans in particular really loved the story of Alexander the Great. And so, and the medieval, there's a lot of medieval versions um, of the Alexander story, which is collected in stories called the Alexander Romance, which were kind of legendary tales about Alexander. So he was also a very popular character throughout the medieval era. And there's also a lot of Persian stories and even into India and, and, and Arabian, that area of the, the Western Middle East or the Western Asia. So he, he himself became legendary. And that aspect of his character both influences who we want to write about, right? We want to write about the people that we all talk about because we perceive them as important, more important than, say, some poor woman living in a town that got, you know, besieged and attacked. You know, her story is deemed, well, she's just collateral damage, which is an issue with storytelling in general. And it's one of the ways that in which storytelling becomes political. So I have to say, yes, I, I, I succumbed to the allure of the great charismatic leader, um, except that I wanted to gender swap them. But I, I did a lot of research. I read a lot of books to the point where I'm kind of getting sick of reading books about, about that history and Alexander the Great. Um, I don't know what else to say about that. I've read a lot. So I guess then my follow-up question to that would be, how closely do the Sun Chronicles follow the specific story of Alexander the Great? Okay, so I, I mean, on the one hand... It's not spoiling anything to say that I definitely use the actual history as a template. And the more people know about the history of Alexander, they'll see the things that I've dropped into the book and they'll see the things that I've used in the story. And in book one, for example, uh, without spoiling anything, there's a wedding banquet scene, and it is pretty much lifted from history. Um, it reflects a supposed incident that really happened. I mean, because I'm changing a lot of the background setting because it's set in space, it's set in the far, far, far future, it's set in a world where gender isn't the thing that people's status or occupation or what they can do is based on. Th those things have like these huge ramifications. So there have to be other reasons that people have fights and conflicts. So those affected what I do and how I could handle the actual history. So I, I don't really want to go into too much detail, especially since I'm working on book two now. But to a great extent, I follow the actual history, but it's all swapped in and out and fit to this other setting that I've created for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think that actually 
parallels what you were talking about with the Hawaiian Islands method. You kind of have these historical points that you're trying to hit in a certain manner of speaking, but you're also inventing your way there, I guess, in ways around the historical texts. Right. And I can't, I mean, there's so many things you can't do exactly. One of the first decisions I had to make, and and actually it wasn't even a decision to make because I already knew what I wanted to do, but was if I'm going to gender swap Alexander the Great, you have two options. You can create a story in which a woman overcomes gender discrimination to become a charismatic leader, or in which she's treated as, say, Elizabeth I, where people would say, well, she has the mind of a man. Or you can say, I'm not going to write that. I'm going to write a story in which whatever gender this character was, that's immaterial within the setting. But the thing is, it's not immaterial to us as readers. And that's a significant difference because we're always going to read, or at least in the early 21st century, we're going to read the story of a charismatic leader whose ability to lead is never questioned, as both Irene and Son's ability to lead is never, ever questioned within the society of this future history. That is a commentary on how much women's ability to lead is questioned say, in the United States right now and in the world right now. So I am making a commentary, even though to them it's nothing, to us it's something. Absolutely. And now I I suspect answering this might be a little spoilery, so feel free to skip past it if you like. Uh, But it's pretty clear that Sun is the equivalent of Alexander the Great in the story. Uh, Are there any other characters that specifically map onto analogs of historical figures? So there are... Some specific analogs, there are some adapted analogs, there are some combined analogs because actual history is too complicated and too filled with too many people and places to uh, accurately place. I mean, people just couldn't manage all those different places. They couldn't manage that Philip, uh, Alexander's father, Philip, he, he, um, he fought in Thrace and in Illyria and Epirus and... Uh, the the upper Macedonian provinces, not to mention Thebes and Sparta and Athens. I mean, not all, it's complicated. See, it's already complicated, but you can't throw all those names down. And we're not even in, we haven't even reached the Persian empire yet, right? And the fact that Anatolia at that time was many Greek city-states that had been conquered by the Persian empire several, many generations before. So the level of complexity in history is too much for a novel like this. So you have to collapse those things down. So what that means is that there are a few very specific uh, analogs, and obviously Sun is Alexander, and I don't mind saying that Irene is the Philip analog. So that was Alexander's father, Philip, and that Joa is the Olympias analog. That was Alexander's mother. And that Hetty or Hestia is the Hephaestian analog. Beyond that, there are some other specific analogs, and as I said, some adapted analogs, where I've maybe combined people or added an extra role to somebody or given someone a role that they did. I mean, it's just to combine things out, but I don't want to talk about anything else because one of the things I think readers who know the history will enjoy doing is trying to figure out who's who. Well, I guess without getting into their actual historical identities, uh, with a lot of your point of view characters that you're writing from, you play around with different grammatical tenses. 
So how did you choose which tints to use for each character and what effect are you hoping to achieve with readers? So I didn't choose to do this. And I say that in a weird, I, I say that absolutely honestly. It's like it chose me. I knew that I wanted to write, I knew Persephone had to be written from first person. And I just liked the sound of present tense for her better because I tried writing her both in present tense and in past tense and it just felt better to my ear and it felt better to the way she narrates that she would be in present tense. Um, Zizou is then set, you know, he's, he's in third person, so he's a step back. But again, his, his points of view didn't feel right in past tense because, I don't know, maybe because he's a person who's all about action. And I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I couldn't write it in third person. And then Apama being from the enemy's perspective, I wanted that little extra distancing factor. So it was easy to write her uh, from third person past tense, which is a very standard way to, to write to write something. And I do think it gives a little more distance, but also she wasn't a character who wanted to talk about herself in first person anyway. And then Sun, I, I actually toyed for a while in the very early days of working on this, like three years ago, of not giving Sun a point of view of, at all. But I realized eventually that I simply couldn't do that, that I had to do it because that kind of Sun as a character is very daunting. I mean, it's a mindset that it's hard to find. It's a, it's a mindset that's both huge, like galactically, universally huge and almost unfathomable and yet also very narrow. So for me, it was a challenge to, and, and, and kind of scary to think, well, okay, I'm going to try this from her point of view. But knowing that when I did that, then I had to give myself that step back of doing it in third person past tense. And there's another reason I do her point of view in third person past tense, but I can't tell you what it is because it would be a spoiler. Uh, and, and I know, like you were saying, that third person past tense gives a little bit of extra distance. And for me, at least, when I read something, that extra distance for like these big, larger than life, like legendary characters, that kind of adds to that, I guess, that aura of greatness around them. You, you know, it's interesting because I've written, I have a thing about in, in my writing about writing about these charismatic leaders. I don't know whether it's that the role is fascinating to me or whether I'm fascinated by my own fascination with the role and kind of, and kind of annoyed by my fascination with the role since, <laughs> I, since I'm not really in favor of large scale conquest and, you know, wholesale oppression. And, and yet I find this character interesting, but in the other cases, I have a, you know, the Kamjiata, the, the character Kamjiata in the Spirit Walker trilogy, the character of Captain Anji in the Crossroads trilogy, the character of Bakhtian in the Jaron books. Oh, and my first one, Alexander Jahane in the Hyro trilogy, who is in fact named after Alexander, or that's why he, ha that's why he gave himself that name. I don't know about Crown of Stars. There isn't really such a character in Crown of Stars, but all three of the, all four of those characters are all seen from outside. They have no point of view. Huh. 
So they never, you never find out what their interior thoughts are. You only interact with them as someone from outside them. And I did find that, I mean, I did that because I didn't want to get it, try to get into their points of view. So Sun's the first time I've been trying to do this character riff from the inside. So it's been, it's been challenging to do it. Yeah, it's almost like you're continuing to push your creative boundaries. Ah, why? <laughs> I mean, that's what we do, though, right? Yeah. Well, so one thing I'm curious about, and I, I realize there's probably not like a direct analog for all of these, but what sorts of real world influences went into the various cultures? So I wanted to be really careful about not mapping the Alexander history and those cultures straight onto this one. So I didn't like research Persian culture and do a faux Persian culture. And partly it's because the setup is so totally different that it doesn't work. Partly it's because this is meant to be set in the far, far future of our own timeline. That's the fantasy element of this story, actually. So I wanted a connection because I had to make a choice between having no connection to earth and earth cultures at all, to totally make up everything, or to set it so far in the future that the earth cultures, and, and have such a, a separation from earth, that the understanding of the people who in this setting, which is like three to 4,000 years in the future from now, their understanding of Earth is kind of like our understanding of ancient Sumeria. We have some potsherds, right? And some writing that we can decipher. But we don't fully, we can't really say we know what it was like to live in Sumerian culture. We can't really say we know who they were and how they thought about themselves, except for our interpretation of some of these fragments. So I wanted to create a setting that had a fragmented view of the place they came from, which they call the Celestial Empire. And I also thought about the demographics of Earth today and how that might play out in the demographics of this far future, who would have been on these, these generation ships that went, you know, a thousand years journeying before they reached a place where they could find planets to settle. And so I chose to suggest that a significant number of the population demographically is descended from Han Chinese. And this isn't as obvious in the book and may not be as obvious from uh, India, because South Asia and East Asia, it, and, and as well Southeast Asia, you know, if you add together India, China, Indonesia, add on the other Southeast Asian countries, Japan, Korea, that's a significant number demographically compared to the rest of the world. So I wanted to make sure that the cultural elements that had come through, even if they were not, so it's not, it's not future China. For one thing, I can't write future China. I'm not the right person to write that. I don't I'm not Chinese. I don't speak Mandarin. I don't understand. I, was, I didn't grow up with that culture. I don't understand it. I love to read books set in a future that grows out of China written by people who can actually write that. But at the same time, I wanted to create futures where what has come down through 
the generations are aspects and specific kind of like foundational elements culturally. So for example, Ken Liu is a friend of mine, the writer Ken Liu, and I asked him, Ken, what would like three or four things be that if there was a thousand or 2000 year gap, what things would the people on these ships still have? And he said, well, they would have, I mean, this is what he thought, right? He said, well, the characters, you know, the ideograms, the, the writing system, which is very cherished uh, and important, um, the, the connection to ancestors, and there's a couple of others. But so if you look at Kaonia, for example, you'll see elements of those things kind of embedded in how that culture functions, as well as some aspects of Macedonian culture, which I wanted to put in, which is, for example, Irene's peers, who are like her companions or the marshals who are her age, the people she grew up with, they call her Irene, they don't call her your majesty. And that has to do with the way Macedonian noble culture and, and the relationship between the king and the free citizens or the free men. It was a different cultural thing than you would see, say, in Louis XIV's France. And I wanted to also show that. So I, I blended those things together. And then in terms of the other cultures, I went other ways with them. I, I tried to, the fiend culture, there's a whole long story about how I've been developing that. It's kind of embedded in the book. The hints are there. The, the Yale League is based on um, the idea of academics uh, who, you know, so th there's jokes about how they're like so fixated on grammar. I don't know. And their planets in the Yellow League, which you probably, I mentioned like once, uh, are a lot of them named after ancient universities from across the world, things like that. So I'm trying to suggest these fragmented views of the ancient past that they're, they have used to build how they think that their society is now. And so you also, you've touched on this a little bit already, but you also make a lot of deliberate choices regarding gender and gender roles in the societies that you've created for The Unconquerable Sun. So can you talk a little bit about some of these choices and why you made them? Like, like what? I'm not, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Like what, like what did you see as a, as choices about gender? Uh, I, I guess certain things I've noticed, like in the Fiend military, uh, they don't say sir, they say ma'am. Um, that's, that's the Fiend. That's just the Fiend. But yes, among the fiend, they say ma'am instead of sir, but that's just the generic term they use. Yeah, so yes, and the queen marshal in Kaonia, the individual is queen marshal whether they're a woman or not. So Irene's older brother was also queen marshal. Right. I know that in particular stood out to me. Yeah, that actually, there'll be a little more, I don't want to say too much. There'll be a little more about why the, um, why the baseline for how people talk about authority tends to be female, uh, in the, in book two, there'll be more about that there. I don't want to, I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. No, no spoilers. It has to do with the history. It has to do with this kind of longitudinal history and where the earliest settlers set up and how they set up. Well, I, I think I can speak for most of your readers that I am fascinated by that and I can't wait to discover where that goes. So looking forward to the future a little bit, it's kind of an interesting situation that you're in where your release day for Unconquerable Sun is almost simultaneous with another story you have coming out. So 
What can you tell us about The Long Walk, your short story in the Book of Dragons anthology? Yeah, it's actually the same day. Not That wasn't my planning. I had hoped it would not come out exactly <laughs> the same day. The Book of Dragons anthology was is created and edited by Jonathan Strand. And it's coming in a kind of a deluxe hardcover because it's going to have this, the illustrations. Each story will have an illustration by Rovina Kai, I think her. I don't think that I'm, I think that's her name. And he just wanted dragon stories. And the initial idea for the long walk was my initial idea for the story. And then I spent about a year because fortunately he had a long lead time coming up with different ideas because I didn't think I could make it work. And that if I did make it work, that he wouldn't want it because it's just a story about a widowed woman who in her society, if you're widowed, you're, uh, when, if your husband dies, you're then considered officially dead. And I thought, well, who would want this story? I can't make it work. And I tried like two or three different story attempts and they didn't go anywhere. And then one day I just realized that it was like a scroll that she starts in one place where she wakes up in the morning next to her husband who's dead. I mean, that's, I think the first sentence, so it's not a spoiler. And then each of her movements, she moves from one, like she moves from that room into the hallway, she goes downstairs, she goes, but she never goes back into any place that she was before. So it's always a long walk into a new place. And once I had that in my head, the story just fell into place. And I basically wrote it in one long, you know, it probably took me a couple weeks, but I basically wrote the story in one long thing about this journey she goes after she is officially legally dead. She's legally dead. But of course, she's not dead. And what happens to her then? I love that symbolism of the long walk, like you were mentioning, uh, in addition to the literal long walk in the story. Uh, so I, I wish I'd picked up on that when I read it, but I find that fascinating. So also looking towards the future, you said you were working on book two right now for the Sun Chronicles. That's so. all I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Furious Heaven, uh, I see online it still says late 2020. I imagine that oh, may no, have no, changed. Oh, no, no, I don't know given... why it says that. I would say I, next year, late next year. Okay. I mean, listen, people can it, can, it can either be fast or it can be good. And since my name's going to be on it, I want it to be good. Absolutely. Uh, well, other other than that, I know that's everything you say you're working on at the moment. Do you have any future plans to tackle anything else? Uh, nothing I can talk about right now. Maybe, maybe sooner, maybe soon. I don't know. All right. Fair enough. I'll just leave it mysteriously like that. <laughs> well, since centering the stories of women is such a central theme throughout your entire career and almost all of your work, are there any books with similar core themes that you'd recommend? Let me, I want to mention this recent novella from earlier this year called Empress of Salt and Fortune. It's a Tor.com novella by Nai Vo, N-G-H-I is her first name, Vo is her last name. And it's a lovely short, but also in its way, epic story that deals with empire and change, very large change, and the position of women. And it's all centered from women's perspectives in a really lovely way. And it's also centered, one of the things I loved about it, the way it's structured is through 
examining the objects of daily life. Each there's a series of objects. Uh, the the character who's narrating the story will say, "Oh, look at this bowl," and then a part of the story, a part of the history gets told because of the bowl. So this way that material objects of daily life are used to tell this greater story is just absolutely fantastic. So that's the example I would use for today. There's there's many more, but let me stick with one. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this this is a rather oddly timed question to be asking now, but I always like to conclude with what's something that you're just really excited about right now? I'm hoping that in Hawaii, we're in, I think, stage two reopening because we do have low, uh, very low caseloads right now, and we're not having a big spike in, in cases. And the next stage would be stage three. And what I'm really looking forward to is that canoe paddling, club canoe paddling is restored so that I can go out paddling again. That's what I'm most excited about. <laughs> That's outrigger canoes for those who don't know. Yeah, well, I, I hope that that happens soon. Kate Elliott, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Travis. It's been great. Thank you. You can find Kate Elliott on Twitter as at Kate Elliott SFF or at our website, kateelliott.com. Unconquerable Sun has dinosaurs, sea monsters, blind seers, epic space battles, and the sci-fi equivalent of American Idol. And that's barely scratching the surface of what makes this book so fun. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We are so close to being able to upgrade our microphones. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.